And welcome back. Mark Roseman, Ryan Sherman sitting in for A.J. Carter this Sunday night. Joining us now is a man who has done it all in the game of hockey, as he's a former professional ice hockey player and referee. He played in both the World Hockey Association and the National Hockey League. He was a teammate of Mark Messier for the Stingers. His last season of professional hockey was 1979-1980 with the Quebec Nordiques. After his playing days ended, he had a lengthy career as an NHL referee. He officiated 1,010 regular season games, 49 playoff games, the 1987 Canada Cup, the 1991 Canada Cup, two All-Star games. He also played one game, albeit for the fictional Long Island Ducks, as he was an extra on the set of my favorite movie, Slapshot. It is a pleasure to welcome back Paul Stewart to Sports Talk New York. Welcome back, Paul. Hey, I'm happy to be here. It's Thank absolutely you. our pleasure. Because you know what? I went back March 27, 2011, eight years ago. We had you on our show for the first time. And I remember I was so blown away by by the way you spoke, the different stories that you had. You and I started talking about a book back then. I had never done a book, you know, since then I've been able to do five of them. Um, so I was trying to find some co-authors that could get your story right. I had to step aside because I, I wasn't doing right by it. But as you have always done in your career, you persevered, and eight years later, you want to go is out. How proud of that book are you? Well, I'm proud of it for many different reasons, and I appreciated your help because, in many ways, the whole aspect of putting a book out, as you well know, <laughs> is a tedious job, and it takes many hands to get the batter right. But particularly, I'm proud because of the fact that it's not just a hockey book. It has a lot of other stories and meanings to it, especially for those folks who are going to hear on a, a very hot summer day the coldest words that you can hear, which is uh, you have cancer. And it's happened to me several times. And I, I do admit that perseverance and, and a little bit of grit has uh, kept me going. Absolutely, and I remember you know taking the ride up to the Cape, and you know one of the times you got emotional was talking about that day, and you have a chapter in the book dedicated to that as well. Um, but let's first start off with the title, You Want to Go. It kind of has double significance. Uh, can you tell our audience a little bit why that was the, the title you went with? Well, how many times have we said to our friends or our spouse, I'm going out, you want to go? And in <laughs> hockey... On the ice, when two tough guys might face one another, they would look toward each other, and the attitude would be, you want to go. And you nod, and you give it the gunfighter's look, and off you go. And In particular, my first game in the NHL against the Bruins, it was Terry O'Reilly, who I said it to, or he said it to me, regardless. We both acknowledged that we had our jobs to do, and we did it. But more, more importantly for others, my dad was a great sports official collegiately. He did three sports, uh, football, hockey, and baseball. He did the NCAA uh, men's ice hockey championship on six occasions. He did 19 beanpot finals. He did uh, the College World Series in baseball in Omaha. He also did football games such as Army Pitt and uh Harvard and Yale and things like that that had significance for college football, plus coaching and teaching at Boston English High 37 years. He only took five days off for sick time. And the fact is that he would often say to me, I'm going to Harvard tonight, you want to go? Or I'm going to Cornell this weekend, you want to go? And I always wanted to go. And as we conclude the prelude of my book, the preface, 
I do say to the readers, well, this is a little taste of what this book is about. If you run, if you want to take a, a walk to the rest of my life, turn the page if you want to go. And so that that's pretty well it. It's an invite, and it's significant in my life for those those particular reasons. You know, back eight, nine years ago when I was preparing for the interview and I started reading about your grandfather, I, I was totally blown away. And for me, it was like I unearthed this buried treasure because the more people I spoke about to this in hockey circles, people really didn't know the impact that your grandfather and, and what he did. I mean, he truly was sort of like Forrest Gump. So for those in our audience that might not have listened to us back eight years ago, tell them, you know, about your grandfather. Because to me, he, he's... Uh, you know, he's a documentary waiting to be made. Well, he was a minor league ball player, and significantly he was playing in Montreal, which is one league below the uh, major leagues at the time in 1917, and he resigned from baseball and became the first American professional athlete to enlist in the military for World War One. So he had a, a great love of our country, the second aspect was that in the winter, he would come back from pitching. He ended up signing with the White Sox in 1919 and then hurt his shoulder. And they sent him to Louisville where he roomed with Joe McCarthy, of course, the, the great New York Yankees manager for years and years. And he, he persevered in baseball until it looked like that door was shut as far as playing. So he started managing, and then he became an umpire. But at the same time, in the winter, he would come home, and the only building that could house hockey or skating in the winter was the Boston Arena. It was also a multi-sport facility for track and, and boxing particularly. And he was the manager there working for Walter Brown, who was the founder of the Celtics and the head of the BAA, who also started the Boston Marathon. So my grandfather was around and about at the time when Crusher Casey, the great wrestler, was was wrestling and and Fritzy Zivic, uh, the boxer, and uh, certainly others along the way that he knew, and including Leo DeRocha and 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 Babe Ruth and all of them, because in the winter he did the he did the hockey at the arena, and then the Bruins started in 1924, and he became a referee in the NHL, first American to do that, and he did that for about 13 years. He did. Uh, five Stanley Cup finals, but in the summer he was umpiring, and in the winter he would come back and, and, and referee. So his train tickets and his trips were quite long. I think my dad said that, that his tickets uh, for for the seasons were almost look like a roll of uh, toilet paper because it was just one stop after the next. But he was a guy that it was tough. He had a lot of uh, people who... Uh, admired him for his toughness and his decisiveness. He, he did four World Series, four All-Star Games. He did, uh, as I say, uh, five Stanley Cup Finals. And then one year, Chicago's owner, Major McLaughlin, who had been in the Blackhawk division in World War I, was trying to put a team together of All-Americans, and he thought a logical thing was to have an American coach. And my grandfather had coached MIT, Harvard, Milton Academy and a lot of different others. He also started the women's hockey program at Radcliffe in 1920. So coaching and in, in, it was in his blood. He, he took off his skates as a referee and became the general manager and coach of Chicago in 1937, and they won the Stanley Cup. And that, you know, is something that my 
family is particularly proud of. And then when he got fired, as they inevitably all coaches do, he went back to to refereeing and went back and did four more years. I always wondered what it would have been like for him to go into Chicago after the owner had fired him. <laughs> it, absolutely. It, amazing story. First American head coach to win the Stanley Cup as well. It, it, and so many people in the hockey world don't even know about it. It's really, truly amazing. And that, that was one of the things. It's just so he many. Had, he had nine Americans on his team, and one of whom, uh, Vic Heiliger, and people would say, you know, oh, I remember that name. He was the first coach of Air Force in 57, and they have, a, they have an award named after him, and he had, he had a, quite an extensive college and a pro career, Johnny Mariucci and others, but uh, Mike Caracas, the goaltender. But a lot of people don't realize that Vic Heiliger's brother was Moose Heiliger of Easy Company of, uh, of the Band of Brothers. Uh, absolutely, that's what I'm saying. It, it just phenomenal. Like, that that is a documentary waiting to to be made as well. We mentioned in the open about your one day with the Ducks in the movie Slapshot, but your ties to that movie are deep. As one of your first teammates in professional hockey was none other than Bill Goldie Goldthorpe, and your first interaction with him at the team's Christmas party is really something that could have been a scene right out of Slapshot. You want to tell us a little bit about how that went? Well, I had left the University of Pennsylvania on December thirteenth and had asked for a tryout, took a $14 bus ride from Philadelphia up to Binghamton. They were the worst team in, quote, the worst league. Uh, <laughs> Bob the Hound Kelly suggested they used to practice at our rink at 10, uh, pick the worst team in the worst league and ask them for a tryout and go from there. So I did, <laughs> and I was fortunate to uh, do okay in the first few games, and they signed me to what I thought was a magnificent contract, total of $250 a week. I was living in a motel, and uh, I brought home about one ninety three fifty. <laughs> but they had a, a, a Christmas party with, you know, the cold cuts and, and guys, you know, having a few beers, and I was getting to know these fellows, and, and I'm sitting at the bar with my back to the door, and a fellow tapped me on the shoulder. He said, are you Stuart? And I turned around and I said, yeah. And he whacked me, and he knocked me right off the bar, so he sucker punched me. And it was Billy Goldthorpe. And Roddy Boomfield, who was the double for Paul Newman in Slapshot, was the captain of our team. And he said, don't go outside unless you can beat him. I said, here, hold my watch. Come on, let's go. <laughs> and <laughs> I grew up in a neighborhood called Dorchester, Mass. And, uh, yeah, maybe a little uh, not as tough as Hoboken, but not too bad. Uh, we have the uh, we have those uh, Wahlburgers and uh, and a few other different people, but long story short, uh, I had the better of Goldie and but I wasn't really, you know, I was I, I was in the festive mood and really excited about being a pro hockey player at two hundred and fifty dollars a week. But uh, I had him up over my shoulder and the guys are yelling, throw him out in traffic and throw him through the window and all. I mean, there were a lot of suggestions, but I, I let him down and he bit me. And then he bit me on the back, and he bit me on my cheek. And instead of having a great Christmas party with the guys, Peter Miller, who ended up being the Edmonton trainer with Gretzky and then went to L.A. with Wayne, um, he, he, he ended up taking me to the hospital. I got to get stitches and, and a tetanus shot. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You mentioned Dorchester, okay? And, you know, every hockey fan knows about the Gordie Howe hat trick, but in your, you know, NHL debut, 11-22-79, against the Bruins, you registered what you call the Dorchester hat trick. What is the Dorchester hat trick? 
Well, Gordy Howe's hat trick is a goal, uh, a, a, an assist, and a, and a fighting major, I think. Isn't yep, that right? Yep, and exactly. um, I, I uh, tell people I, I scored two goals on the record in the NHL, one in Vancouver and one against the Islanders, uh, Chico Resch. But uh, on my first night in the league, I had a hat trick. And people say, what, what kind? I said, well, I fought O'Reilly, Jonathan, and Secord right in a row. <laughs> <laughs> And so that's a bit of a Dorchester hat trick. But people don't remember, and, and, and I bring it up occasionally, but, you know, when I broke into pro hockey in 75, there, there were only 11 Americans in the National League. And really the, the WHA was there, and there were a bunch more. But for us to make it, and I'll, I'll just go down the names, uh, Paul Holmgren was with Philadelphia, Nikki Fatih was with the Rangers in Hartford, um, Jimmy Troy was with Hartford, uh, uh, Frank Beaton? Be- well, no, we're talking American guys. Oh, okay. And, right. and so when you look at, at, at me in Cincinnati and then in Quebec and, and you look at uh, other different fellows, Chris Nyland, I mean, you're talking out of the teams, Paul Holmgren and Jack Carlson. I mean, you're talking uh, half, of the te- half of the 19 teams in the NHL at that time had American guys as their tough guys. And it really reflects on the fact that we were minority guys and that, you know, just similar to when you see, uh, you know, Spanish guys now and back, you know, in earlier times, uh, Jack Dempsey and, the, and, and, and such with the Irish guys that broke in. And then it was Joe Lewis with the black guys. And, and you, you, you see, it was really a minority type of way that was the only door open for us. We had to actually push it open to get there. You had to fight your way in, absolutely. One of the chapters in the book is called Battling to Be a Blue Shirt. And if I remember correctly, uh, when you were trying out for the Rangers, your, new, your, your roommate at the time was a kid named Mike Aruzioni. Um, what do you remember about your time in Ranger camp and trying to make the New York Rangers? Well, John Ferguson had been coaching, and they played Atlanta and Kurt Bennett, who played at Brown, who was an All-American big guy, six-degree black belt, six-six. Um, Dave Maloney cross-checked him in, in Madison Square Garden. This was late in the season, March, and we were all watching the game at a little pub up in Binghamton. And Kurt Bennett took one stride and turned and threw his glove, and, and he smoked that guy, knocked him flat cold. And Ferguson went on television and radio after the game. I'll find myself some tough guys and everything. And, of course, not being that shy, I, I, I called them the next day, and I, I got put on their, on their what they call their negotiation list. They, they, they owned my rights for two years. And, you know, I felt that getting a chance to play in New York, which is probably, you know, the most prestigious of all the teams at the time, uh, more so for me because – you know, I was an American kid, and, and uh, you know, in New York, and, and the whole thing to me was, was so exciting. And, you know, Hadfield and Jockman and, and, and Roger Bear, especially Roger Bear. So you look at, at that opportunity, and I trained like a bug to get ready for that camp. And I, we, we had a rookie camp in Point Claire. We played a whole bunch of teams up in Quebec. And I, I, I wanted to prove to Ferguson and John G. Talbert, that I was going to do whatever it took, and I would never back down from Kurt Bennett or anyone else. And I never did back down. I always said yes. When they say, you want to go, I say, oh, yeah, no problem. I'll meet you right out there. And um, so long story short, 
they took they took Nicky rightly so. He was he was a bit bigger and a little more experienced than me. But I felt I played one exhibition game. I lasted eighty one seconds. I bought eight hundred dollars worth of tickets for my family. And John McCauley, God rest his soul, was the referee, and he tossed me. I, I fought a kid named Steve Short from Philly, and uh, I hit him, knocked him down, picked him up, and I grabbed him by the back of the sweater. But I also got some of his hair. So that's what Fergus. Uh, John McCauley tossed me for yeah. Yeah, gross misconduct. So I, I always think that if I had played that whole game and I, I was playing well, uh, you know, I had a shot on that. I had a big hit in the corner on Kelly, the guy that told me to get on the bus and <laughs> take the works team and the, get a tryout. But I, playing against the Flyers, I mean, what a better better way to prove your toughness. And, and in those days, that was my ticket. So that, that's what I had to do. Uh, I'm sorry it didn't work out. I ended up going to the WHA. I started making some real good money at the time, and I made my bones over there. And then I had a chance, of course, to finally get with Jacques Demers again after he had coached me in Cincinnati. And I went with Fatoric, and we went and Jamie Hislop, and we we went to uh, the Nordiques, Les Nordiques, and I, I got to practice my French. <laughs> you know, I know from the time I spent with you at the Cape that day, the, the two times you got emotional was when you talked a little bit about your time between your your hockey career and then becoming a ref, and, and then um, the cancer. So I have to imagine um, writing that chapter, you know, reliving that day, the, the diagnosis and, and what you went through, had to be difficult. How difficult was it to, to talk about that and get that down into the book? Well... First of all, a lot of the writing happened when I was in Russia working for Mr. Putin and Mr. Medvedev, and I was the chairman of the KHL officiating. And you got to be careful. Are you going to be in the Mueller report? You got to be careful, Paul. <laughs> uh, Mueller egg noodles. That's the only thing. I mean, you know, the Russians found out, and they thought I was Russian because uh, Putin and Medvedev said, you, you don't blink and you're not afraid of anybody. <laughs> I said, you don't like the job I'm doing. Put me on a plane, send me home, but pay me. <laughs> and, and the fact is, you got me over here to tell you the truth and fix this. And it's the same thing. I could do the same thing with the NHL right now. That I think that they need, they need a little bit of decisive coaching and a little strategy and a little positioning work. But long story short, going back to the, the, the question, my whole aspect of dealing with cancer was that tough things happen to tough people. And you don't get to be tough unless you face tough stuff and you deal with it. And I think a lot of people were watching. And not only that, but I felt that I had a son that was only a day old when I got diagnosed. And, and I wasn't ready to give up my life. And particularly because it took me so long to get to the NHL and, and especially with the officiating and, and you know, migrating and doing things that others had never done. And I think that just the whole aspect of surrendering is, is so foreign to me. And that's why when I speak to groups now and I talk to others along the way and we talk about, about gritting your teeth and, and bearing down, that's all important. But it's also important to be able to be a great teammate. And I had fantastic doctors and, and family that counseled and stuck with me and kept me going. I'll tell you, I was... I was totally depressed after I stopped playing and before I started refereeing. 
And, you know, Wes McCauley is now one of the best referees in the NHL. His dad and Scotty Morrison were the folks that saved me. And they gave me a purpose again in my life. And I felt important. And I think that's something that, you know, we talk about the tragedies of some players that they get involved with drugs and, and drinking and some are suicidal. And I faced all that, too. And I just felt, maybe this is too big of, of an opinion, but I just felt that there was a reason I was here and I should, you know, bear down and grit my teeth and, and fight. And uh, that's what I did. And I think, you know, the NHL and Hockey Fights Cancer and other things that I've done along the way to help people, that's what I'm supposed to do. So I'm fortunate that I've had the chance to live as long as I've had. I just, last Thursday, I, they thought I had prostate cancer. I had a brain tumor two years ago. I mean, I've been through lots of stuff. Yeah. But, you know, that's that's part of being me. And maybe others are watching. And they've got tough t- things going on in their life. And if and they take a look at me, you know, not thumping my chest. But if I can get through it, others can get through it, too. Paul, I knew eight years ago that your book was definitely worthy of a book. I'm sorry, I was unfamiliar at the time to to make it happen, but I'm so happy at the thought that you persevered, found the right person, the right voice at the right time to make it happen. Where's the best place for people to get a hold of this great book? Well, Amazon is the best place because they, they ship right away. And I go around now and do signings, and I do, like I gave a speech, um, uh, several weeks ago in Pittsburgh for several hundred USA hockey coaches and and a lot of people bought my book so you you can get the book on Amazon and if you want it autographed or personalized we can do that and the fact is that that uh, out of that book spun another book a children's book called The Magical Christmas of Paul Stewart I had written a story out of my book for Huffington Post and and public radio bought into this story that I told about my first pair of skates and Christmas and such. And uh, uh, the young son of my agent took it and turned it into a school project. And then it became published. So the magical Christmas of Paul Stewart. But the best part of that is Matthew Sherman and his mother, uh, Liza, and the, his uncle is Bill, Bill Melcher, who did the editing. Christmas and I co-wrote the book. But the, the, the fact is that Matthew Sherman, at, at 11 years old, has turned the profits over to Ice Hockey in Harlem and the Snyder Hockey Foundation in Philadelphia so other kids can get a pair of skates and get busy. Great stuff. So I think, I think that's really something. You know, we, all, we all want to, uh, when we leave here, we want to make sure that people are happy that we were here. To leave and, something behind, absolutely. And that's to me, I, I, can't, I can't give back in my life. I've had too many great things happen. And not some also not so great things. But I can't give back, but I can share. Awesome, Paul. I'll help. Thanks so much for your time tonight. This is actually a record for me. I just spoke 20 minutes with a referee, and I wasn't asked to leave the premises, so I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I've, been, I've been kicked out of better joints than this. <laughs> All right, Paul, congrats on the book. Thanks so much for your time tonight, Paul Stewart. Thank you very much. Great book, you want to go. We'll take a quick break on the other side. I am Tauber and the NBA.